that special music. I love that uh, style, that antiphonal response where the question is raised and then a response is given. Uh, that's a, probably a lot uh, like it was with the uh, temple worship in the Old Testament era where they had the antiphonal choirs there made up of the, the, Levi, the Levite choirs. We had one large body of singers here and they would sing in the other side geographically actually would respond over here and kind of back and forth in stereo in those antiphonal moments. So that was just beautiful. Um, if you like to write, you know, I'm not a songwriter, but that just listening to the style there, the questions answer, questions answer. And of course, what an important question, is he worthy, uh, the Lamb of God? And of course, uh, the right response, he is. Well, it is great to have you with us. For those who are online, we're about, I'd say, 50% this morning. So for those who ventured out, maybe 60%, thank you for coming out. Please be careful heading home. We, we do think there's going to be a lot of melting, uh, especially the length of my sermon that, it, that I have. Uh, in fact, the, the plants may <laughs> produce their buds, <laughs> maybe fruit in the trees by the time you leave. Uh, but no, but good to have all of you with us and to have uh, Mike and Stephanie Smith, our missionaries, um, what a treat. Welcome. Great to have you. We've been friends for probably 20 or so years. And uh, we've watched their ministry as it started up in Longmont kind of evolve. And was uh, ministries helping churches and individuals and missions locally and regionally. And it's just gone and expanded and expanded. And uh, this legacy trade college, uh, to see, see your work morphing into that is incredible. Um, I would say this is a niche that, that the secular world is, has missed now. And for Christians, we've hardly ever thought of it or done much with it. Shame on us. Um, and and we're, we're, not, we're not under law, that's for sure. For our guests, I don't always talk about Levitical choirs and rabbis. But if, if you are a teacher in, in Judaism, uh, it was required of you to have a trade. So the, the professional teachers, they just weren't uh, in, in their ivory towers working. Uh, they were in touch with people because they worked with them. They were one of them. And so a good rabbi uh, was maybe a carpenter. And so Christ, you know, our, our Messiah, uh, our, our ultimate rabbi, our ultimate teacher, uh, he apparently, you know, we know he's a fabulous teacher, the best ever, uh, but also had somewhat of a trade, likely the work of carpentry. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul, you know, the model missionary. He could serve under nearly any capacity, uh, whether support going out from churches or planting a church or doing tent-making work. He was a tent-maker, literally making tents. He would go out and minister. And um, it was, he wasn't arrogant. He said, you know, basically, if, if I can work and pay for my own bills and I keep my expenses at a minimum uh, so I can focus on you and not have any other distractions... Uh, or questions regarding my motivations why I'm doing this, then I'll do this type of work. And, and so Paul, a tremendous tent maker, so what, what the Smiths are doing in Utah, uh, if my son John, if, if he was 17, 18 right now, that would have been the school. Uh, my, my son John has an aptitude. He's really good with his hands. I am not. I am not. So he, he got very little help from his dad. And yet his aptitude, his interests are in, in physical, manual, uh, he would have benefited. Man, we would have sent him to your school and in a, a heartbeat. And so there may be folks here as parents, you have kids coming up, 
Um, you're trying to figure out what's that next step for them. College is not for everyone. A traditional uh, college experience is not for everyone. And it's very important to grasp. Sometimes people who have gone to college look down their nose at others who have not gone down the same route that they have gone. And uh, that's really disturbing, quite frankly, and unfortunate. And uh, there are those in the trades. You saw the gaps in our country. Woo-wee, uh, what a great opportunity to learn the Bible, learn a trade, and come out and make a difference, whether as a layman or, or a tent-making servant. And so I am, I'm really pumped. Can't wait to see your school. I'll be with uh, the Smiths. I think in three weeks in Utah, Marysvale. Um, they've got a great situation there, a wonderful setting for what they uh, are seeking to accomplish. So let's pray for Legacy Trade College. And then with them is Pastor John Bixby. How many know uh, Pastor John? Anyone? Uh, oh, everyone knows the Bixbys. So in Christianity, in, in the modern era that we live in, in 2024, one out of three Christians on the planet are Bixbys. Or, or, or they are married to Bixby's. That's true, that's true. John had like 18 or 20 kids or whatever it was. Everywhere I go, I run into a Bixby. One of your kids. I'm 1,600 miles from here and some monster of a man comes and gives me a big hug, this tall, skinny kid with cowboy boots. John and uh, his wife and her seven or 10 or 12 kids, whatever it is, is by now. Uh, the Bixby's ministered all over the world. <laughs> um, one of their places was up in, up in Steamboat, and um, they had a unique relationship with a, a camp that they operate up there, the Wilds of the Rockies. How many of you have been to the Wilds of the Rockies? I mean, they're no longer there. They're Wilds of New England and the Wilds down in North Carolina, but John was kind of the pastor to, uh, to, to that camp for a number of years, and others there in the Steamboat area had quite an impact and influence, and then in a transition, they were with us here, and so George Dineker, trivia question. What did Brother Bixby help you do? Pastor. Yeah, the Tamil Indian Church. So, so John, he's half Indian, and so he worked with George Dineker and his dear wife, and they started an Indian work about 20 years ago, and Brother Dineker has carried that legacy on all these years, has had an unbelievable impact, and you were very, very involved at the, former, at the beginning of the shaping of that work. So praise the Lord, and uh, great to have you here. Uh, we miss you, miss you, miss you, miss you. And speaking of Levites and rabbis, I can still think of the series you preached up in Steamboat. So he uh, infused into their church calendar the Levitical feast for one year, if I understand it properly. I'm not sure how well that went. He uh, wasn't putting them under law, he was just taking it, the calendar, the lunar Jewish calendar, and, and they taught for the spring feast, the summer feast and the fall feast and trying to put them into a, a really neat culture of learning uh, the Bible and then making applications for Christian living today. So uh, I thought that was intriguing. I, I don't have the courage maybe to do that, but I thought it was a great, great idea. And John's a, a fabulous Bible teacher, and I'm glad you're related uh, to the board here, uh, on the board there at the school. Well, this morning we're going to pick our study up in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we're going to hopefully scan verses 24 through 33. Uh, this morning. Uh, so if you could find your place in the scriptures, I will read that section to us in just a moment. And as you're working to find that, I'll just make a couple comments on a couple of things. Uh, one, I appreciate the men who came out early this morning to shovel uh, snow and try to get things safe for us. I think we're going to be good going out, but still be very, very careful. Uh, it's, it's possible things could freeze up tonight, so if you're coming back, please 
uh, exercise caution. So thank you, Troy, Seth Blumenthal, and others. Uh, the Iwana Grand Prix, huge success. I was talking to Brian Malik yesterday, and the numbers were just up despite not able to use the gym. We were in the lobby, but we had a lot of kids here racing their cars, and uh, just a wonderful time with our children's ministry. As mentioned by Pastor Skip, the gym renovation project is complete. Uh, I don't know how it got done nearly on time and on budget. Uh, only, uh, I would say, because of Brother Chad Miller's fine management. Thank you, Chad, for doing that and your team. Um, we'll have it open, as mentioned, on Wednesday. And perfect timing for Awanas and to get back into our, our Hispanic church that worships there and the Chinese New Year celebration and Young and Heart events and the food bank and the list goes on of things that that, that gym is used not every day, but maybe every other day. It's used quite a bit, and it looks gorgeous, and I look forward to getting into it. And what he wants you to do is, if you can, bring as much junk back into the gym as you can, and that storage area above, um, he wants that stacked up with things that we don't use for 15, 20 years, and just stack it to the roof. He said, bring it back in, and he said he's been missing all that stuff we never use or rarely use. So just a I speak as a fool. Uh, it's the cleanest it's ever looked. It's the most organized it's ever looked. It will never be repeated. Take a picture of it now. And uh, please don't pull Ched's hair out by bringing all your junk back, is the message. Uh, yesterday in the snowstorm, we had a funeral for Carol Hughes. Some of you were there and fought, those, uh, fought the storm. And I thought we had a great service. Continue to pray for Bob and his family uh, with their loss. We've been mentioning uh, praying for Bob Campbell. Uh, Bob's in a battle for his health, life perhaps even, uh, down in Texas. So pray for him and his treatments. And then Marlo's just been really, really struggling. She's uh, in need of a surgery, and they're trying to eliminate a bacteria problem so she can get into surgery. And until that happens, it won't happen. So we need to pray for our Pastor Ed's wife, uh, Marlo. We love her dearly, and uh, she needs very much our prayer. And then finally, we did start our Young at Heart men's Bible study this past Thursday. It's a, a joy for grumpy old men. I tell you what, we had 12 or 13 guys start it. They came in grumpy, <laughs> unpleasant, rude. It was a bad, bad start. It was exactly what I expected. But by the end of the study, they were all smiling. It was joy for grumpy old men. And I would say, wise, if you have a man who's grumpy and old, those are the two requirements, grumpy and old, uh, we'd love to have them join us on Thursdays at 10. This will be the second study this Thursday, 10 to 11.30. We're studying one of the greatest books on joy, the book of Philippians. And we'd love to have you men join us. We'll talk about some future fellowships uh, with the men, and then we'll join the ladies on occasion. Okay, a long time spent on foolishness, I know. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll pick things up here in verse 24. It's really an extension of last week's message on persecution. You'll see three times as we read through this section that we are not to be afraid of certain things, and we are to be afraid of one person, as you'll read here for the reading. Beginning here in verse 24, the disciples not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It's enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? 
Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this morning that we can come together. Thank you for folks who have ventured out in uh, slick conditions, give everyone safety. Thank you for those which are here on site. Thank you for those which are here online. Thank you for those which listen to sermons even after they're recorded. And we pray that the word of God would, would shape our lives, would serve as a hammer to chisel away things that need to be chiseled away that we put off things that are not like Christ and we put on Christ and to be like him. We pray for this morning as we uh, are going to continue to advance in persecution issues here in our country and around this world. Uh, These are very pertinent topics that we're looking at and so give us wisdom and discernment and help us be prepared for the onslaught of persecution that we can anticipate. And so Lord, give us grace, protect us, deliver us from the evil and the evil one. Lord, for those with uh, the needs we've listed this morning and many more we could add, we continue to pray for Robert Hughes, his family, give them comfort for the loss of his wife. And uh, we thank you for her radiant testimony and the people that she had reached through her 80 years of living. Lord, we pray for Bob Campbell, that you'd give grace to Bob and that uh, the treatments that he's going through would have impact and help him and uh, that you'd be merciful to him. And then uh, we pray for Marlo. Uh, Lord, we just know that she is uh, in need of this surgery and she has to have the proper health to, to be able to enter into it. And so we pray for her, pray for Pastor Ed as he cares and as they work together. Uh, we know that this is a very critical week um, for, we hope, some, some advancement and an opportunity for, for healing through a surgery. And so, Lord, do, um, do a great work. Be merciful there. We uh, thank you for the Smiths who are with us this morning and this, uh, this ministry of works that they've had and how you've used Brother Mike and his family in building and encouraging ministries around the country and world. And now for this new college, uh, the Legacy Trade College, we pray that you would bring students, bring the right personnel that will train and mentor. And Lord, that there would be a, a, a great, great hand, the great hand of blessing upon the school that folks would graduate and go out and do good work for you. We thank for Brother Bixby with us here this morning and the special friendship we have and the memories we share. And uh, We thank you for him, his family. Continue to bless the works that he's involved in. And for us here this morning, uh, may we say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you're just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Matthew. The book is organized around five major discourses. We're on the second of those five dealing with missions and the subsequent persecution 
that the workers of God can anticipate. We have worked for this chapter thus far, verses 1 through 10, on the call of the 12 to be of the Lord, and from that unique relationship with the Lord and the power of God uh, to do the work that he calls his children to do. We saw that they were sent out, they were to find a worthy host, uh, they were to find a place in the region they were ministering, just sit still, stay at that one location, and, and work that area. Uh, they were to pronounce shalom, peace upon those that participated with them and were uh, complicit in good ways. For those who rejected the message and towns that did not want to hear the good news, uh, they were to shake off the dust of their feet and go to the next town. And so we looked at uh, a passage on that. And then last week, uh, if you're doing the work of God, living a godly life, you can expect persecution. And uh, these were the points we highlighted last week. You can expect it. You can expect it almost from anywhere. You can expect it especially from religious leaders, political leaders, tragically at times from your own family and other classes of, of humanity. And expect persecution, expect it to be difficult, expect to have to endure some hard times, just expect that. But in the interim and as you go through it, uh, expect God to come alongside of you to give grace, give wisdom, give whatever you need to go through difficult trials. And uh, expect maybe that there are times you have to move to escape martyrdom. Sometimes you can't. Uh, we see, saw at the end of that paragraph, verse 23, that this pattern of persecution or this expectation uh, wasn't just for the first century only or for 10 centuries into the church, but for all the church age. Until really the Lord returns, we can expect uh, persecution. So that completed our message last week. Now this week we're transitioning to the next block of text. And really it's an extension of what I just covered last week where uh, the Lord goes into more details uh, in the area of discipleship and to train disciples, learners on how they truly need to expect persecution and then how they're to continue to respond to it. And he's going to give some new thoughts to that topic in this section. So uh, let's just dive right into it. One of the points that you can extrapolate from the section is that the disciple can expect the same treatment as his or her teacher. So sometimes we have the idea, well, Jesus is God, and Jesus was in a position of prominence, and Jesus was a high profile, and Jesus was targeted, and Jesus, they, they rejected, and it was Jesus that they, they, they sought to, to hurt and abuse emotionally, physically, and ultimately kill. So we expect that for him. That's a high bar. Uh, but for us as his followers, as his learners, as his disciples, we can't expect that to happen to us. Uh, we're not at the same level of, 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 of the Son of God. And yet in this text, the Lord is saying, no, you're going to see in my life, Jesus is saying, you're going to see the rejection, you're going to see the abuse, and you're going to see them even kill me. And what you see happening in my life, you can expect the possibility for it to happen to you. He says the disciple is not above his master. So the disciple is the learner. The master here is the, the, the daskalos, the teacher. So you have an academic language here, you have the learner, you have the teacher, and the teacher is going to suffer in certain ways, and so will the student, so will the student. We're the students. Christ is the master teacher. He's the ultimate rabbi. So uh, we can anticipate however they treated him, we're going to be treated 
in a, a similar fashion. Then also in this neatly balanced parallel text, you have the servant is not above his Lord. So now the language of sociology, you have slaves, the doulos here, the, the servant, the slave, is not above his master or his Lord. So here are obviously two positions, a master teacher and, and a Lord. Uh, they are holding a higher status than, than student and slave. But the text is saying that these subordinates... Learners and slaves are going to suffer at times at the same level as the master teacher or as the master or the Lord. So a very important principle. So if you think you're going to get a pass on, on persecution, um, please don't think that way. And that's what the text is, is seeking to describe for us. In addition to that, in the same breath almost, the Lord goes on to say, it's enough for the disciple that he be as his master. And that's an interesting kind of a little appendix to what he just said. That it's enough. It should be satisfactory for the disciple to be as his master. That, that should be good for us. What a privilege, what an honor to suffer like our master. Uh, what a privilege, what a joy to be like him in some way. And in a, a very subtle way, Matthew is pointing down the road to some Pauline theology. So Paul's going to pick this little thread up later and say for, for, for the believer, our goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Our goal is to be like Christ. Not with the, the, the attributes of God that can't be transmitted to us, his omniscience, his omnipotence, but these moral qualities, these great characteristics of the human heart. Uh, we, we are to imitate Christ. We're to follow him in these regards. And uh, that's, that's one of the aims of the Christian life is to be like the Lord. This is accomplished by putting off the old nature and putting on Christ. And so Matthew's kind of pointing a little bit in that direction, hinting towards some future theology that Paul's going to really develop. So it's enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. And so this is a very convicting text. If you're a teacher, the Bible says in James 3.1, Be not many masters or teachers, for they shall receive the greater condemnation. So there's a lot of responsibility placed on preaching or on teachers, whether you're teaching adults or teens or, or children or, or the Tamil group or the Hispanic group or the deaf group. Well, because as a teacher, what you're saying, this is scary, I want you as the learner to be like me. And I say that, I'm saying, please, you don't want to be like me in some ways. I Believe me, you don't want to be like me. But if I'm following Christ in that vein of thought, be like me or be like another teacher. If they are following the Lord and have a characteristic that is like the Lord, well, that's, that's imitable. That's good. And that should describe us. And it's amazing the influence the teachers have on their students. If you're a good teacher and you love your student and you're doing the right job, your kids will want to be like you. They will want to be like you. So uh, when I was in high school, I had, a, I had a teacher coach. His name was Randy Epler. Um, so I moved my senior year to a new school. Uh, I, I continued to play sports. I played basketball there and I played baseball. We had a fabulous baseball team. Went very, very deep into the state uh, tournaments. But Randy Epler, he was my coach. And uh, I just admired him. He was a really, really good guy. Really, really good guy. I didn't have him for a class. He taught other classes I didn't need to take. 
uh, but as a coach, as a human being, I really liked him. And uh, he, had, he had gone to a college about an hour away from, from our high school. It was called Elizabethtown College. And that's where he got his teaching degree. And so as I was following my teacher, my coach, uh, I was thinking of going to college. I applied to several colleges. I was part of a class for counseling class uh, that I had. Uh, I applied to William and Mary. So that's a pretty neat school. I'm, I'm William. That's my first name. I was dating a girl by the name of Mary. thought that was pretty clever. I applied to William Mary. My first name is Will. My last name is Sen. Put it together. That's Wilson. You know, Wilson. Wilson. So I applied to Wilson College in Pennsylvania. I was refused. <clears throat> Should have sued. It was an all-girls school. <laughs> I thought it was quite clever. You know, I like I like my odds. If, if William and Mary didn't work out, and Mary didn't work out, and she didn't work out, uh, I'd go to Wilson College, it would really work out. Okay. And in the, the, the school project, you had to apply to three colleges. My third college was a school in the West. Didn't know anything about it. I just liked the name. It was, it was the Y. It was B-Y-U. Brigham Young University. I applied to Brigham Young University. <laughs> Man, I would have been a great Mormon, right? Right. Didn't go to any of those schools, but my coach had an impact on me. I wanted to be like him. He went to college, I wanted to go to college. He went to Elizabethtown College. He wanted to be a teacher and a coach. I wanted to go to college to be a teacher and a coach. I went to Elizabethtown. I wanted to be like my teacher. And uh, that, that's very, very, very convicting. Uh, this text, it's enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. Especially in the context of, of being a disciple of the Lord when it relates to persecution, how does the Lord respond to adversity? That's the real context. So how does he respond to adversity and persecution? And whatever that looks like, we need to imitate. You know, you think about our responses sometimes and those who are watching. You, you think about our kids in our home. How do they react when mom and dad are under a lot of pressure? Things aren't going well. Things are going amiss. Uh, what, what do they see? Do they see mom and dad saying, kids, we're going to pray more. We're going to trust the Lord. Uh, we're we're going we're, we're to get into the word of God and search God's word for wisdom. And, and kids, uh, you don't need to fear. Things are kind of tipsy-topsy right now. But we're going to trust God. And, and God's going to answer our prayers. He does exceedingly and abundantly above anything we can ask or, or th even think. And we're going to trust the Lord. Do they see that response in the midst of trial, or do they see anger, frustration, unbelief, pride, complaining, belly aching, fighting? So how do we respond in adversity, and how do we respond in the midst of persecution? Well, Christ is the ultimate master. Think of, think of the pinnacle of persecution. He is on a cross. He's going to die between three and then between 9 and 3 o'clock, he's on a cross, and at 3 he dies. And on those six hours of life on a cross, the things he said there were incredible. You know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, that's quite a response when you're being persecuted and you've been nailed to a tree. Father, forgive them? That's, over, that's amazing to think about. What an example in the midst of severe persecution. And throughout church history, you have people who have been burned at the stake, and you've had people who have been crucified upside down. You have been people who have been executed, and even in the midst of that, they follow the example of Jesus. And with tears in their eyes, and as their body melted under the heat, they said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's powerful. That's powerful.
So the aim of a, of a believer, a discipler, is to be like Christ in whatever setting to imitate him. And notice what they say here, what is said in the next phrases. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? You know, here this third point in the context of persecution for disciples of Jesus the disciple can anticipate being verbally trashed. And it seems like our enemy Satan and his, his henchmen know exactly what most cutting words to use, what crude invectives to hurt us. And yes, sticks and stones do hurt, but words can hurt as well. And, and notice what they call Jesus, Beelzebub. You know, you talk about a nasty thing to call the Son of God. What, 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 does, what does Beelzebub mean? In the, in the Hebrew, the background of that, especially as, as the Hebrews understood the Philistine God and theological system, it meant the Lord of the flies. So be, you're Beelzebub. You're the Lord of the flies. Not the creator of the universe, the Lord of lords. You're the Lord of the flies. And, and where do flies land? So for the Syrians, they had the same word. They just ended the word Beelzebub with an L, Beelzebul. And it was the Lord of Dung, the Lord of Dung. And this, this word became a word both in Latin and Greek to speak of, of really Satan as the prince of demons. So to call Jesus Beelzebub, you're the Lord of flies, you're the Lord of Dung, you're only good to be king over dung. How crude. How vulgar. And to call him basically, you're like the devil. And you, who, who, who else could you compare Jesus to in the worst way? What would be the worst comparison? Beelzebub is a pretty good word. So what's, what, what he's saying here, if they call the, the master of the house, if they call me the Lord, the Lord of lords Beelzebub, in, imagine, anticipate them trashing you. And just anticipate it. Whatever nasty things people will say, they're going to say it to you. Behind your back and to your face. So anticipate being trashed verbally. And uh, none, of us like, none of us like that. None of us like being trashed. And yet we need to anticipate it. We need to be ready for it when it comes. Fourthly, in this passage, the disciple, in view of the, this resistance and this persecution is not to be afraid. Well, you say, that's easy to say. When people hate your guts and people are saying nasty things about you, you can see the hatred in their eyes, and if the opportunity arises, they're going to kill you. And so, uh, don't be afraid of that. And that's what Jesus is saying here exactly. Fear them not. And the tense that he uses here, and the voice that he uses here, he's saying, not for one moment, not, a, not in one instance, ever be afraid of the persecutor. Wow. The day may come when you see someone with hate filled in their eyes and murder uh, there in their eyes, and, and you're going to say, what did Jesus say? He said, be not afraid of them. Fear them not. Fear them not. So how in the world do you do that? By the grace of God only. Lord, help me not to be afraid of these people. And that's one thing that, 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 that Satan wants to do. He wants to intimidate you through his, his pawns. He wants you to be threatened. 
It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing when someone threatens you and wants to take out your life. I've only had a few death wishes and only a few letters of people who said, I'm going to kill you, only a few phone calls that I'm going to kill you. I'd say maybe a dozen death threats, not many, thankfully. But you do get those death threats at times, and, and you say, wow, should I be afraid of that? Or how about the lawsuits? I've said about ten times this morning, watch yourself as you go out there. Because uh, there's two or three of you I'm really worried about. If you fall on your belly and break your hip, you're going to the, sue the daylights out of this school, out of this church. Right? You say, I would never do that. You know what? You don't know what some people do sometimes. We're in a crazy society where there's lawsuits. Uh, I, I've been threatened more on lawsuits than my life. Thank the Lord for that. I guess we need a good lawyer. I love the one kid. We were having a, a children's ministry, and this kid, was a, he was nasty. He was nasty. And he was just picking on the kids, and finally he went after this one kid and was jumping all over him. And our worker, Adam Rowland, Adam Rowland, some of you know the Rowland family from Colorado. This is back in Clemson. Adam, Adam was working on a medical degree, or trying to. He jumped on that kid, pulled him off pretty firmly, pretty firmly, held that kid. And the kid was totally frustrated. And immediately this kid said, I'm, I'm going to, uh, you're going to be sued. This is like a 12 year old kid. Where does he get that language and understanding? I'm going to call the police. And Adam said, that would be great. That would be great. Call the police. Let's call the police. And so we called the police. And this, this kid is really, we had a neat outreach to this black community. And he, this was Adam's white. This kid's black. And Adam loved black kids. And this kid is throwing out the race card. Call the police. Well, that was great because uh, the, the cop we called was Robert Crooks. Isn't that a great name for a cop, Crooks? So Robert Crooks is about six foot four, black, powerful, dear friend. We played baseball together. So Robert Crooks came, and this kid was, he was so excited to have this black cop show up. He, he thought, he, this is perfect, you know. And Robert came to that kid and said, hey, hey, hey there, buddy. These folks love you, and they're trying to help you, and what you're doing is wrong. You get your act together. And this kid was like mortified. You know, he, just, he just stood back and really helped us. The cop really helped us, you know, in a wonderful, wonderful way. The disciple here is not to be afraid of the, the possibility of the threats to death, the threats to lawsuits. What the enemy wants you to do is shut down and run and be afraid to live in fear. And folks, that is bondage to live in the fear of man. It's a snare to your soul. You don't want to be afraid of man. So, so important to grasp what Jesus is saying here. Don't be afraid of them. And they want to shut you down verbally. One of the challenges we're facing in America right now is, is our First Amendment rights. We have a freedom of speech issue that is being greatly challenged right now. We as Christians have a Christian worldview. We believe, for instance, that marriage is between a, a man and a woman. That's our Christian worldview. We love Israel because God says those who bless Israel, God will bless. So our worldview is pro-Israel. We believe the Bible is very clear about nations having borders. That's a biblical truth. Nations have borders, and the primary responsibility of government is to protect their people. This is our worldview. And you come out against the world's view? It used to be, well, we have our differing opinions. Not much will happen. Today, if you express your worldview, you may be in jail. I may be in jail for just simply stating the biblical obvious. 
So they want to shut us down. That's why the Lord here says in this text, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. So everything's going to come to the surface. Truth is going to bubble up. What I tell you in darkness, he's saying, guys, I'm training you right now. I'm the master teacher. And there's some timing issues. I'm feathering the clutch to release information to you for, for really strategic reasons. I'm not hiding anything. Uh, in the end game, it's all going to come out. I want you to take what I'm teaching you, what's coming into your privately. I want you to go out and speak what you hear. Preach it upon the housetops. So here, there's a, a negative. Don't be afraid of the persecutor, the oppressor, but instead be this kind of person. Don't back down. Preach the word of God, not in an arrogant manner, but in truth, don't be silenced by the evil one. And right now, many Christians are afraid to say anything. What will they think? What will they do? Even with this whole thing of defunding the police and all the horrible things where a guy saves someone's life and jumps on the attacker, eliminates the threat, and the guy who should be the hero goes to jail or is fined. Are you kidding? So if you see someone getting beat up, you're saying, I don't know if I want to get involved. Here's this old lady getting beat up. I don't know if I want to get involved. Because. No, you, you, you have to get involved. You cannot be the coward. You cannot be the person afraid of man. You must speak. You must preach upon the housetops, the Word of God. Yes, sir. Amen. Now, you think about our housetops. I don't think I want to be on the housetop today. Uh, you know, we have a 412 pitch on our house and probably a 612 pitch with a lot of ice and snow. I'm not going on the housetop, so I don't mean to disobey the text. But I'm not going there today. But their housetops were flat. Their housetops had a staircase. You'd go up on the housetop, catch that nice breeze. You'd be there on the housetop, and you'd see your neighbors coming by. Hey, George, how are you doing? You know. Hey, how are you doing? Very visible, very easy to talk to people. So he's saying, you get up there in clear visibility, and you preach to those coming by the street. We, uh, we used to drop our kids off. Maybe it wasn't a good idea. We used to drop our kids off at Sean Maniscalco's house. How many remember John, Sean Maniscalco? <laughs> okay. So here's Sean Man, Maniscalco. Okay, he's mafia. So that's a bad start. It's, okay? It's like Ron here. Marcucci. It's a Maniscalco and Marcucci. Probably same people, you know, from Italy. And, and Sean, Sean, he was a weightlifter. So he's really, he's, he's a bodybuilder, but buffed. All right, buffed. And he looked in the mirror a lot, okay? And he wore those little funny T-shirts, the, you know, the Muscle Beach T-shirts, the Wife Beater T-shirts, and he was constantly looking at muscles, and he wore bling-bling, okay? Very, this, is, this is stereotyping, and this is... Uh, Steve, cut this from the tape after I say it. <laughs> I grew up with a large number of Italian friends, and I love Italians. And not all, but many, like their bling-bling, and Sean had bling-bling, gaudy bling bling okay necklaces and crosses and uh, just bling bling okay you got the picture when we just met him his wife was ready to leave him okay? it was not a good situation so he's working through some things working through some things and he wanted to get to know our kids he was working you know trying to help with some of the kids and so we would drop him off at the man of Scalco's and we'd pick him up 
and we're looking, where's Sean and where are our kids? They're on top of the roof. And these aren't flat roofs. They're sitting on top of the house. I'm saying, Sean, what are you doing on top of the house with my kids? And they'd go up there and eat pizza. And you walk by, they would talk to you. You know, you could see them and you could hear them. Wow, wow. You know what Sean's doing today? He's a pastor. He has a wonderful marriage, beautiful kids. He's pastoring in Florida, doing a great work for the glory of God. He's preaching from the housetops of Florida. Praise the Lord. So the disciple is not to be afraid of the oppressor, the persecutor. We cannot be silenced. We have to preach the gospel very visibly and very clearly. In, in that context, the Lord continues to say, okay, you do that, <laughs> probably going to stir some things up. And then he says again the second time, and, and fear them not. Don't, don't be afraid of the, the persecutor. And fear them not, which kill the body. My fifth point is the disciple is to know the extreme limit of the persecutor. Think about it. The only thing they can do, the ultimate extreme, the limit is they can only kill you. Right? That's all they can do to you. You say, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> I don't want to be killed. I want to live. I got this instinct of preservation, and I, I, I like my life. I don't want to die, you know. But the Lord is saying, I want you to grasp this perspective, he's saying. They can only reach your physical body, and they can do horrible things to it, and they have in history, church history. But they are not able to touch your spirit. They are not able... To, to harm your soul. They can't get to the spiritual man inside. They can't touch it. It doesn't belong to them. They, they, it's out of their reach. It's absolutely impossible. So you are made up, you know, the theological question, are we bipartite or tripartite? Are we, are we creatures made up of two parts or three parts? And we can all safely say we're made up of at least two parts, a physical part. Some of, some of us have a larger physical parts, and then there's a spiritual part. And then you can work from there. Is there body, spirit, soul, three parts? Is there four parts? Whatever. Here, very clear, at a minimum, Jesus is saying there's an outer part. That's all they can reach. So, so don't be afraid of them. Now, if they could do something of your soul, if they could grasp your soul and cast your soul to hell, now we got a problem. If they can control and dominate and manipulate your soul and take care of your soul and damage it forever, that's a problem. But Jesus is saying, that's impossible. Keep that perspective. Know that limit. And instead of fearing them, have a healthy respect for God. The disciple is to have a healthy fear of God, but rather, in contrast to fearing man, who can only hurt your body, Fear this one. Fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. In Gehenna. In hell. In Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word there. So where's Gehenna? What a, what a neat word choice by the Lord. Gehenna, if you're familiar with Jerusalem, you know, every city has its dump where you take your trash, your refuge. And so in Jerusalem, just south of the city, in the valley of Hinnom, is, is the garbage dump of the city. And they're burning the garbage there. 
You know, for some of you who lived out in the country, I love going to my in-laws' house in Pennsylvania. They have a, a, a big can, a big drum. And it was just a daily thing for the family. You took your garbage out, you put it in that can, you lit it, and you burned it. You, you didn't have a, a, a garbage man. You didn't have an HOA. You, you, you took care of your garbage. And stuff you couldn't burn, you would take to a dump for a fee. So you burned as much as you could, right? And most of the time, that thing was always burning and blowing up junk and smelly. All right. An incinerator. <clears throat> the Hinnom Valley was always on fire. It was such a large dump. It was always burning. It always stunk. More garbage, more fire, more garbage, more fire. And Jesus said, hell, hell is ongoing. It is permanent. The fire is on. And he's saying, look, you better fear God. You better respect the Lord. You better know the Lord because he's the one, like the persecutor, who can deal with your body, but he is the only one who can take your soul and place it in Gehenna where you're eternally punished. Wow, now that person you better fear that controls both the outer and the inner man, that's the person you respect. So we've got to have this perspective. We've got to flip-flop. I'm not going to fear man. He can only do this. I'm going to fear God because he can do both of this. And I'm going to respect that. I don't want to be sent to hell. It's a very, very powerful statement here. It's, it, the disciple needs this healthy fear. So there's this tension with the fear of God and the love of God. And so in the, almost in the same breath, Jesus goes from the fear of God to, to God's love and care of his children. I think this is critically important in the midst of, of persecution to realize who to fear, God, not to be afraid of man. I'm not going to be a man fear. But in the context of tribulation and persecution, the disciple is to trust the Father's providential care. In the midst of a trial today, whatever it may look like, we're going to trust God. We have to trust God. So look at the text. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. So the, the, the message being communicated here is even with this small little bird and the big picture of God's creation, nothing happens outside of his control. Nothing happens outside of his providence. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge. He is keenly aware of his creation, even is concerned and is aware of the bird that dies. And there's going to be this comparison and how much more valuable are you and I than a, than a little sparrow, okay? So this providential care that he's even aware of an animal dying. You know, just a, a, a parenting tip here. I think it's good to have animals. They teach, I think, so many things. So if, if there's a young boy here, you need to go home and talk to your parents and say the pastor said that every boy should have a dog. I mean, really, if I was a Stedman boy, I'd go home and say, I would say, Dad, did you hear what the pastor said? Every, every boy should have a dog. I think every guy at about 66 years of age should have a quarter horse. I think every big boy. John, do you have any horses right now? Bunch of cows, okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, horses sustain themselves. They don't cost anything. It's, yeah, not, not, you had a horse. Didn't you have a horse for your daughter? Yes, yes. So uh, I think animals are great. I think as a parent, what happens with animals, 
you get your cats, you get your gerbils, you get your whatever, whatever, they die. They die. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You, know, you have this cat, this dog that your, ch your child just loved, and now that it got run over. <laughs> you know, I had a cat named Floppy as a kid. Beautiful cat. Then a car ran over and it flopped. Lived up to its name, Floppy. And it broke my heart. You know, what, what can you teach? Well, in this case, God's aware of that, that animal's death. Well, the follow-up question for the astute young theologian is, okay, if he's aware of it, then why did he let my cat get run over by that car, right? But you can teach about death with the death of an animal. You can say, you know, this world was designed by God not to have any death, but because of sins, death entered into the world. And that was a cat, and we're sorry for your loss, but you know what? We're going to die too, and it's so important to know the one who died for us. That's Jesus. And he tasted death, and he was buried, and he came alive again. And so there's a, a springboard off of even the death of a sparrow that you can talk about death and the importance of us to know the one who's the life. And so there's a powerful text here. And then the specifics of God's providential care. He notices us. If he notices a bird, he cares for us. He's providentially superintending our lives to the fact that he knows the very hairs of your head, that they're all numbered. Now I look around with some of our guys here. That's easy to do. That's easy math. Bald is zero. Okay? I tease. I laugh. Each of us likely have between 90,000 and 150,000 hairs on our head right now, depending on your color of your hair. Okay? 90,000 to 150,000. That's a range. I can't say, okay, Bob Barry, I, hey, you're, you're 121, 202. I have no idea. You have nice hair, but I have no idea. All right? But God knows every single hair. So you might have lost one. It's on your, it's on your coat. I'm probably with you. Dog hairs, too. I do have dog hairs. My wife is good at getting rid of the dog hairs. If, if she didn't do what she does, you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize me. It'd be just dog hairs. But he knows the very hairs of her head. He knows that detail about us. Who's thinking about labeling and numbering hairs on her head? No one's thinking about that. So I mentioned it, and we read the text. You're not thinking of those details. But the point is, God is superintending the most minute details in your life. So if you're going through trials and you're going through persecution, you can be assured that God's watching, He's superintending, He cares, He knows all the details, He's in charge, He's sovereign God. And you can rest in His providential care. It's a beautiful text. So we wrap this thing up here. The third time it has told us not to fear. Fear ye not, therefore, in view of uh, what we, he just said about the knowledge of God with the animal world and in his intimate knowledge of man. Don't be afraid of the persecutors. Don't be afraid of, of man and what they can do to you. Uh, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And, and most of the self-esteem movement, I'm, I'm death on, death on. And most of it's, it's wrong focus and not biblical. But there is value to us. There is value. We just see it. We are of more value than many sparrows. Well, that's nice to know. How much more valuable are we? Is that a $5 increase? $10? And what, how much more? Let me just encourage you. We are image bearers. We were made in the image of God. And God is valuable. 
you can't put a price on, 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 on God. He's so great. And we are made in his image. There's a lot of value in that statement. So as we do life, we need to realize, wow, we are, we are image bearers. We're bearing the image of God. We're representing him. There's value in that, in that we represent the ultimate image, God himself. You think of the, the statement Christ will make. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, in, in math you have those little things, arrows pointing, you know, greater than or less than. He just said everything in this material universe, everything. Here's your soul. Here's all the material world. Put the arrow like that. Your soul is more valuable than all of creation. Everything material. Again, because of who created you and the image that you're bearing, that's a lot of value. And there's a lot of people who are trying to gain the whole world, is the point that Jesus was making, and they didn't realize the value and the eternal value in place that the soul will find itself. I think of the value that God so loved the world, that he loved you and I so much. So the value isn't perhaps in my love for God, the value is in his love for me. And that love extended to the point that Jesus died for me while I was yet a sinner. That's valuable to, to, to grasp that he loved me so much that he would give his life on a cross to die for me. One of his image bearers. And once he saves us, he's renewing us by the Spirit of God to, to get to back to being a perfect image bearer, ultimately through glorification. So we're a fallen creature, and he's renewing, and he's sandpapering, and he's buffing, and he's trying to get us back to the original image. It's kind of like going out to a junkyard, and here's this piece of junk car, and, and the guy who knows how to take that piece of junk and, and restore it to its original condition, that's what God's doing. He's restoring us to the original condition. That happens at glorification. So our value, there is value. We're certainly more value than the sparrows for a lot of reasons. I've given you a few. Finally, this whole paragraph ends with, with an incredible statement. And I won't, I'm not going to pull the teeth out of it. I'm not going to soften the blow of what he says. This is critically important. And I have my own soteriological system, and so do you, likely. But look what he says here at the conclusion of this section. He says, whosoever therefore shall confess me, homo legeo, say the same as me, confess me before men. Those who say, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am born again. I know the Lord. However you want to word it. I've been saved by grace. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him, Jesus says, I will confess also before my Father which is in heaven. You speak up for me, I'll speak up for you in the most critical setting. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. I don't know him. He denied me. He lived as if he didn't know me. I'm going to confess this before my Father. I will deny him. Wow. In the middle of the context of persecution... Am I going to be this unwise to say, you know what, I am so afraid of what man could do to me. I'm backing down. I'm not going to preach from the housetops, anything. I'm just going to clam up. I'm going to play it safe. 
I'm going to fear man so I can preserve my life. Or go worse, go Peter. I don't know the man. I swear to God I don't know him. He cursed. He didn't use bad language. He, he said, I swear to God in heaven, I never knew or met this man Jesus. Okay. He denied him. He was, he was broken man. Later, Lord, three denials, three restoration statements by Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Restores Peter. So there are times we have, we all have denied the Lord. We should have said something and we didn't. We had an opportunity to witness and we didn't. I was scared of a guy just recently and I, I backed down. I backed down. I've asked the Lord to forgive me. I was afraid of him. He was probably demon possessed. <laughs> probably demon possessed. High on drugs, high on mushrooms, big time. Worshiping a demon in my very presence. And I had the message that would unlock that bondage, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I really was afraid of him. Shame on me. And I asked God, please forgive me. I backed away from an opportunity to see the power of the gospel work in that dear soul's heart. Shame on me. Sorry to be that terrible example. For us, how often have we denied and, 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 and did not take advantage of an opportunity? So the goal, of course, is, is that, that if that's our description of us, we want to go a different direction. We want to go over here and speak for the Lord and confess Jesus Christ before man. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be afraid of man. Instead, fear God. Fear God. Take to heart what Jesus said here. He means what he said. You can work for your systematic theology how that all works. But don't take out the text. He's telling you something. Speak up for me. Tell others you're a Christian. Don't be the silent witness. Be one who preaches from the housetops. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this very powerful passage where we all can see ourselves being afraid of someone, being afraid of man, what they might say, what they might do, what consequences we might face. Lord, I pray that we would renew our minds with Scripture, this passage, that we're to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. May we take this text that if we deny you before man, your son will deny us before you. Oh, Lord, we don't want that ultimate judgment. We want to confess you before man, so Christ will confess us before you, our Heavenly Father. Help us be as bold as a lion. Help us, Lord, to be wise and win souls. Help us not be silenced or shut down, even if it leads to prison or death. May we speak the word through the power of the Spirit of God. May we proclaim that Jesus saves. Lord, if there's anyone here online or here in our service that needs Jesus as their Savior, I pray they would bow the knee before you and call upon Christ in faith to be the personal Lord and Savior that he desires to be. Lord, work in our hearts here. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Nathan, if you would come and dismiss us with an appropriate invitational song, please.